As a young doctor, I used to work in a cardiac clinic and a chest clinic, and we used to see these people come in with heart disease, with chronic lung disease, and we'd patch them up and we'd send them home, and three months later, back they were again. And not very well-educated young physician, I used to walk around the wards and say, this doesn't make sense to me. This is applying Band-Aids. I don't think we should withhold Band-Aids. If people are sick, they need to be treated. But shouldn't we be trying to do something to prevent the recurrence of the disease? And then if we think about preventing recurrence of disease, shouldn't we be trying to prevent the illness in the first place? And this came home to me when I had a spell in psychiatry. And a woman would come in and she'd say, Doctor, uh, I'm feeling dreadful. My husband's in prison. My son's been using drugs. My daughter's gone off the rails and I'm feeling dreadful. And the doctor would say, take these blue pills. And I thought, here's this woman who objectively has a horrible set of circumstances and we're saying, take these blue pills. Shouldn't our responsibility as people who are concerned of the health of individuals and communities to try and deal with the circumstances that led her to be ill in the first place. Now, as a single physician, you can't do that. The doctor can't get her husband out of prison and get the son off drugs and put the daughter back on the tracks. Uh, he can't do that or she can't do that as an individual. It's only as a, a government, as concerted action, that you can start to take action on the conditions that led to people getting ill in the first place. So from my own experience as a doctor, not from study and not from understanding from books or journals, from my own experience, I thought there's got to be a better way. And that's what led me both into public health, but also into public health that looked at the nature of society as it affects illness. There was the famous Framingham study done in the United States that looked at risk factors for heart disease, smoking, blood pressure, cholesterol, overweight. You study individuals, you look at their risk factors and see if they get disease. And a couple of senior professors in the UK wanted to start a sort of British Framingham. Um, being British, it was going to be done on the cheap. Um, and nevertheless, they said, let's do it. So it started off in civil servants, because there are any number of them and you can get hold of them, as a study of risk factors and disease. When I came along, then took it over, I was interested in how social influences affect disease. And so we looked at people's grade in the hierarchy, their employment grade. You have to remember when we did this in the 1970s, the conventional wisdom was that it was the business executive who had a high rate of heart attacks. So people would say, you know, don't work so hard, you'll get a heart attack. And so that was the conventional wisdom. And what we found in Whitehall was the lower the grade of employment, the higher the risk of heart disease. But not just heart disease, every major cause of death. And that was a bit shocking because cholesterol, blood pressure and smoking don't relate to gastrointestinal disease and they don't relate to suicide and they don't relate to accidental deaths and they don't relate to cancers that are not related to smoking. But we saw social gradients for all these causes of death. The other striking thing about Whitehall is that none of them is poor in the conventional sense. We're used to thinking that poverty is bad for health. And so it is. Poverty is dreadful for health. But even the lowest grades 
of the British civil service are not poor in any absolute sense of the word. So we haven't got the richest people in society, we haven't got the billionaires, and we haven't got the poorest people in society, and we haven't got anybody who's unemployed or has any risk of losing their job. And yet we see this remarkable social gradient. The people at the bottom of the hierarchy had four times higher risk of death than people at the top, and it was a graded phenomenon. The people in the middle had twice the mortality risk of the people at the top in people who were not exposed to any of the usual hazards. What we found in Whitehall turns out to be a remarkably general phenomenon. Uh, it was seen in the national statistics in Britain when a classless countries like the United States and Australia and Scandinavia said, well, we wouldn't find that here because we don't have social classes like they do in Britain. And of course, once people started to look at the United States and Australia and Canada and uh, Scandinavia, they found social gradients in disease of the same order of the, as those we found in Britain. We find these social gradients in health everywhere. One of the difficulties um, in getting national figures in the United States is there hasn't been a long tradition of having income or social class or education even in nationally collected data. There have been lots of special studies that show the gradient in health. One way people have um, tried to look at national figures is to look at geographic areas. And one of the things that struck me is how dramatic the differences are in relatively small geographic areas. If you get on the metro in Washington DC and travel about 12 miles out to Montgomery County, Maryland, life expectancy has risen about a year and a half for each mile traveled. There's a 20 year gap in life expectancy between the low rate of about 57 for men in Washington DC and 77 for men in Montgomery County, Maryland. A 20 year gap. So you've got the best off and the worst off living cheek by jowl in one geographical area. That original observation that I made in the 1970s has then kept me occupied for the next 30 odd years. Given that we always have hierarchies and we can't envisage a society without hierarchies, it's of absolutely fundamental importance to understand why position in the hierarchy is so important related to ill health. Because by understanding what it is, we then have the potential to do something about it. Uh, in the US where in excess of 40 million people don't have health insurance and some larger number have inadequate coverage, people's first assumption is that poor health amongst the poor must be due to lack of medical care. Now we wouldn't claim that the British National Health Service any longer is the envy of the world. On the other hand, there is universal coverage. Everybody has access to medical care. It may not be entirely equal across the uh, social spectrum, but it would be hard to argue that a civil servant second from the top has worse health than one at the top because he has worse access to medical care. It's just not credible. So the medical care argument 
has to be addressed, and it's very important. And certainly my response to American colleagues who worry about the lack of access to medical care in the U.S. is, I agree with you 100%. Any civilized society should guarantee universal access to high-quality medical care. That's a, a sine qua non of living in a civilized society. Once you've done that, you will still find that you have inequalities in health. The social gradient is not primarily due to differential access to medical care. The second assumption people make is it must be due to behavior, to lifestyle. People down the bottom smoke more, they eat more french fries, they do less exercise, uh, surely that must be the reason. What we found in Whitehall was the same social grade in mortality in people who'd never been smokers as in smokers. So yes, it is the case that the lower you were in the hierarchy, the more likely you were to smoke. And smoking is an absolutely fundamentally important cause of premature death and illness. But it was not the main explanation of the social gradient. In fact, a combination of smoking, blood pressure, cholesterol, overweight, sedentary lifestyle explained no more than about a quarter of the social gradient in mortality. So it wasn't medical care and it was not primarily lifestyle. So then the question is, what is it? We have strong evidence that there are two important influences on health and explaining the hierarchy in health. The first is autonomy, control, empowerment. People who are disempowered, people who don't have autonomy, people who have little control over their lives, are at increased risk of heart disease, increased risk of mental illness, increased risk of absence from work, and increased risk of decrements in functioning, in physical, psychological, and social functioning. So autonomy, control, empowerment, turns out to be a crucial influence on health and disease. And there are good biological reasons why that might be the case. The second is what I loosely call social participation. It's being able to take your place in society as a fully paid-up member of society, as it were, uh, to benefit from all that society has to offer. Now, in part, that's social supports and social networks, but it also functions at a psychological level. It's self-esteem, it's the esteem of others, uh, it's saying that I can benefit from the fruits that society has to offer. And these two influences seem to be crucially involved in the social hierarchy because the lower people are in the hierarchy, the less autonomy and control they have and the less able they are to participate fully in society. We're programmed by our evolutionary past to respond to stressful circumstances in particular ways. The body has defense mechanisms. Now, those defense mechanisms can be elicited by psychological threats, not just by physical threats. And one set of circumstances that elicits these body stress reactions is having little control over the circumstances that are affecting you. And that activates these pathways that are put there by nature, as it were, to defend the body in response to an acute threat. When that threat is prolonged and you get prolonged activation of these stress pathways, then you can have bad effects. 
And the two pathways that have most been studied, and we ourselves have also studied them, is the pathway that goes from the brain to affecting cortisol and the pathway that goes from the brain to affecting adrenaline, epinephrine, the acute stress response. And both of those are very important. The acute stress response, the, the epinephrine, one, epinephrine one is a bit quicker, the cortisol one is a bit slower. Now, it's very necessary to have that cortisol response. It damps down inflammation, uh, it mobilizes glucose when you need it. But if it goes on when you don't need it, bad things can happen. And we've got evidence that when you stress people in a prolonged way, you get changes to that cortisol pathway. And that seems likely, in turn, to lead to a whole set of metabolic biochemical disturbances in the body that increase risk of diabetes and of heart disease. We show that stress leads to increased risk of the so-called metabolic syndrome that people talk about with putting on weight around the middle with lipid disturbances that increase risk of diabetes. And the more occasions on which you have stress, the more likely you are to have the metabolic syndrome. I think the, the, the point about the hierarchy is of actually fundamental importance in trying to understand what's going on. The ways of doing without have changed. If you ask people what it means to be poor today, they will tell you it's not being able to buy children new clothes. It's not going on a family holiday. It's not being able to entertain children's friends. It's not having a smart pair of clothes to go to a job interview. Now, we don't think those things lead to ill health in the way that lack of clean water and lack of sanitation led to ill health. We think those things are very important for health, but they must be operating through different pathways. Now, that's very important because what I'm describing, in a sense, is a relative concept. That's not absolute. We have what is an accepted standard of living for our society today. Now, that may change. That may change if you're living in Newton, Massachusetts, or if you're living in Harlem. What's considered reasonable in our society will depend, in part, on the subset of the society in which you live. And you can have all the prerequisites for good health in terms of material conditions, but still be relatively deprived. Now, I think the way to think about this is that relative deprivation in, let's say, the measurement of income or housing size translates into absolute deprivation in what you can do. In other words, how well able you are to participate in society, to take control over your lives, what Amartya Sen calls capabilities. So that relative deprivation is really a very important concept. But it's important because it relates to these concepts that I've been discussing about how much empowerment you have and how able you are to participate. And I think it's of vital importance because... When people think about inequalities in health, disparities in health, they tend to think it's a problem of the poor, them. It's not a problem of us, the non-poor. It's a them and us. 
And that's the wrong way to think about it. It is a problem for us. It is our problem. Let me give you one example. We did a study comparing health, well, self-reported illness and biological markers of illness in Americans and British of age 50 to 65. And what we found in both societies, both in England and in the United States, was the social gradient. The lower you were, the more illness. But strikingly, what we found was the Americans had more illness than the English, even in the top third of the distribution measured on income or education. The better-off Americans had more illness than the better-off English. And in fact, so high was the illness level that the better-off Americans had nearly as much illness as the worst-off English. So it's something that's affecting the whole of society. And if you look at the U.S. as a whole, the U.S. is the second richest country in the world after Luxembourg in terms of income. The U.S. ranks 29th in life expectancy. All this wealth is maldistributed. There are huge inequalities in the society, and I think that's in part why the U.S. as a whole has relatively poor health amongst the rich countries and why even the better off people are suffering. It's an important question to ask, how does this operate? I mean, one way would be if it was simply, well, the health of the poor people is lowering the average because there are a lot of people there who have poor health, so the average comes down. So, well, that's a statistical problem and that doesn't bother me. But... If it's the case that the conditions that lead to poor health amongst the poorest of our society also lead to decrements in health amongst people who we don't think of as non-poor, us, then that's a much more immediate concern, whether it's the safety of our communities, whether it's the nature of our working lives, whether it's job security, uh, whether it's the fact that, for example, in the period uh, in the United States, right through the 1980s and into the early 1990s, the bottom 80% of the income distribution had declines in real income. It was only the top 20% that had improvements. So the conditions that show up in stark form in the poor health of the poor are showing up in somewhat less stark form, but nevertheless they're evident in people who we don't think of as poor, who are above some threshold of poverty, who are in the middle, the large mass in the middle of society, are also being affected by these social and economic determinants of health. If these inequalities in health, this gradient in health, was a fixed property of society and never changed, then you'd say, well, we can't do anything about it. It's just related to the hierarchy. We can't deal with hierarchies. We're stuck. But that's not the case. The magnitude of the inequalities in health changes over time. It can get rapidly worse, and if it can get rapidly worse, it ought to be possible to make it rapidly better. We've seen both in the United States and in the UK that the magnitude of the differences between top and bottom increased between the 1970s and the early part of the new millennium increased. But before that, it had decreased throughout the 20th century. So it means that this is not just, oh, it's capitalism or it's hierarchies, we've just got to live with this. It can get better and it can get worse.
So that gives me some optimism in a general sense that it's changeable. If one understood how to do it and one had the will to try and do it. I'm now involved in a new activity. Uh, I'm chairing a commission that the World Health Organization has set up, a Commission on Social Determinants of Health, that was established by the Director General of the WHO. And this commission is set up to examine inequalities in health within countries and inequalities in health between countries and to ask what can we do on the social determinants of these inequalities in health in order to improve things. We want to learn from what some countries are already doing, so part of what the Commission is doing is actually working with a number of partner countries, and part of what the Commission is doing is actually synthesising knowledge so we can make recommendations on what should be done. Somebody asked me the other day, why are you optimistic that this will have more success than any previous attempt at trying to deal with these issues. And I said, well, I'd have difficulty getting up in the morning if I didn't believe that we had some chance of success. And he said, well, that's why you're optimistic. He said, why should I be optimistic? I said, well, I think there's a growing recognition. The fact that the World Health Organization, really for the first time, has set up an activity like this. The fact that we've got buy-in from several countries who are supporting the Commission, who are partnering the Commission, suggests that there's a recognition from governments as well as public health people in several countries that this is what we have to do in order to improve health. And that simply disease control programs that don't pay attention to social determinants of health are likely to be less effective than those that do pay such attention. Now, I think we do understand much of what we have to do. I don't think it's as mysterious as it used to be. I think there are four areas on which we need to concentrate. The first is early child development and education. I think the evidence is really pretty good right from the beginning of life, and I mean support to women of childbearing age and pregnant mothers and as support of young mothers with newborn infants and young children in preschool phase, that a prime area where intervention is likely to make a big difference to life chances subsequently. I think the second area is working life. And we've talked a great deal about the nature of how working conditions can affect people's health. I think the third area is the structure of communities, of what we do in um, how we create better and worse communities in cities particularly. And the fourth area is in support for older people in society. Are they thrown on the scrap heap, deprived of a role, or are they continuing to have a role in society, to be more integrated into society? Now, if you ask, would anybody of whatever political persuasion be interested in these? And I would turn the question back and say, why would they not be? Why would anybody, regardless of their political persuasion, not think that early child development and education were fundamentally important, that good working conditions were important, because if you're a boss, it's likely to improve productivity as well as improve the health of your workers, that living in communities that were not hotbeds of violence and crime and insecurity 
um, and that had amenities where people can enjoy living and, uh, and growing up and having children and support for older people. This is something you, that you would think would unite all swathes of society of whatever political persuasion. It's a huge issue of social justice, but it's also an issue of individual self-interest. So the social justice issue that I'm personally comfortable with is that uh, I want to live in a just society. I think that's right because it's right. The personal interest is, in a sense, more instrumental. If I live in a just society, I'll benefit. And I think both are true. We need to do certain things because they're the right things to do, to have uh, people not having flourishing lives to the extent that they could, and hence having worse health than they could have, is a social justice issue. But it's one of self-interest because it's affecting me as well. What can individuals do? Individuals can change the world and nobody else can. If you ask, can I as an individual walk in and tell my boss to give me more control or tell people to stop messing up my neighbourhood and make it a, a, a more amenable place to live? Well, no, you can't do that on your own. But to get local governments, national state governments, federal governments to move, to get workplaces to change, individuals have got to force people in control to change and force by um, becoming part of a collective, using their voting powers, changing the climate of understanding. Actually, um, governments will never move until the whole population's moving in a certain direction and then governments get round the front and pretend they led. Um, we've got to create a movement where people understand we're talking about leading more flourishing lives. It's not only about health, important as that is, but health is a marker of an ability to, to lead a more flourishing life. And what these health gradients are showing us is that that potential is not working to the full. And it's up to all of us as individuals and working in concert with each other to change that.